Our reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 5, um, verses 21 to 43, and it can be found on page 1007 of the Pew Bibles. Let's read God's word together. When Jesus, Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. And just now, before Monty comes to speak to us about this passage, we are going to stand and sing together, Speak, O Lord. Let's stand and praise God. When our heart is breaking, Jesus walks with us. When others have failed, Jesus gives way beyond our asking. And when all hope has slipped away, he takes us by the hand. Do you believe that? Am I claiming too much? Well, let's have a look at the next stage of this gospel story as told by Mark. We've already looked at the key moments in Jesus' ministry as he demonstrated who he is and why he came. We've seen him as someone with power over disease, even over the forces of evil, even over the natural elements themselves and the winds and the waves. So what's next? Well, this morning at first glance, we seem to have simply a couple of more healing stories, a, a sick girl and a sick woman. 
But what else is going on? Well, first, let's look at how when our heart is breaking, He walks with us. When our heart is breaking, He walks with us. A man called Jairus comes running and falls down before Jesus and literally begs, pleads with him to help. Jairus was a synagogue ruler. In Greek, it's archos synagogos. Think of bishop and archbishop. He was head of the synagogue. Now, you don't have to read very far into any of the Gospels to know that the synagogue was both the place that Jesus frequented, where his own people met to worship, but also a regular place of conflict and opposition. Jesus taught there, and they didn't like it. He even healed people there, and they didn't like it. When he spoke about the religious hypocrisy, he mentioned the synagogue as a place where that hypocrisy could often be most evident. Matthew 6, when you pray, do not like, be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues. When he told his disciples about some of the problems they were going to face after he had gone, he singled out the synagogues as places where they would be punished. Matthew 10, you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. Synagogue was becoming a place of opposition to all that Jesus was and came to do, as he challenged the religious presuppositions and formalism of his day. And yet here is the ruler, the archa-synagogus, the operations manager of the synagogue, the one who would enforce the laws and the policies of the place. Um, the clerk of session, maybe. Sorry, Garth. But somebody at that level within the local religious community coming to the one who was becoming persona non grata, the rebel. And he falls at his feet begging. And throughout the story as it develops, Mark keeps on using the word archa-synagogus. It's not always translated sometimes for uh, clarity. Our translations just say Jesus said to him or Jesus said to Jairus. But Mark always throws it in, the synagogue ruler, the synagogue ruler. Verses 35 and 36, he says, this is someone we would ex not expect to ask Jesus for help. But you see, when we're desperate, our old prejudices disappear. If your daughter is dying, you don't care what other people think. You don't care what you've been brought up to believe. You don't care what the culture or opinion formers of your tribe say about something. You need help. And of course, Jesus, if he was like us, I guess, may have felt under no compulsion whatsoever to help this man, this ecclesiastical bureaucrat. We know what Jesus felt about some of what Jairus' colleagues had been doing. He said, they're slamming the, kingdom of the, 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 slamming the doors of the kingdom of God shut on people's faces who are trying to enter. But the text is very simple in what it tells us. It simply says, so... Jesus went with him. Was it the quite remarkable faith that he showed in his request? Because he does seem to display quite remarkable faith. He says, please come, put your hands on her, and not see if that will do any good, or she might improve a bit, but so that she will be healed and live. Literally, the word is sozo, literally that she will be saved. 
and lived. And so Jesus went with him. We may not expect certain people to ask Jesus for help, but thankfully he's never surprised. And when we're brokenhearted, and where there is faith, he walks with us. And then the story is suddenly interrupted. Jesus seems to get caught up in one of those frightening crowd surges that you may see on the way out of concerts or football matches. In verse 21, we know a large crowd was already gathered round him. And now in verse 24, we read that it followed and pressed him. It literally crushed him. Sometimes I think we visualize Jesus walking around Galilee and a large crowd following behind him in an orderly fashion, like one of those Japanese tour groups with Jesus at the front holding up his umbrella. But this isn't Covent Garden queuing for opera tickets. This is a frightening rolling mass of people. The already large crowd was now probably augmented, fascinated by the possibility of another amazing miracle. They were surrounding Jesus from all sides. They were jostling for position. They were shoving. They were pushing as he tries to make his way with Jairus to see his daughter. And in the midst of this throng, maybe where he was even struggling to breathe, he feels something and he says, who touched me? The disciples think, hey, this is some kind of joke, yeah? But he knew something had happened and he starts to look. And here we see that where others have failed, Jesus gives way beyond our asking. Where others have failed, Jesus gives beyond our asking. There couldn't actually be a bigger contrast between the two characters in this story. Jairus, a well-known, named leader with standing in the community, comparatively affluent, who would have been meticulous about observing the ceremonial laws about cleanliness and uncleanliness. And on the other hand, a poor, unnamed woman, beset through no fault of her own with a disease that made her continually unclean, ostracized from the social and religious life of her community. And while Jairus seems to articulate a, a relatively strong faith and comes to see Jesus face to face. This woman has nothing but the most superstitious of faiths. But it was born out of humility. She didn't even consider herself worthy to touch Jesus, but only the very edge of his garment. And the way Mark tells this, we are taken right into the heart of this woman's misery. You see, the facts themselves are pretty simple. In the midst of the crush, a woman who's in great need touches Jesus. But look, but look at how Mark helps us to see that this is a woman with a tragic story. Helps us to see her context. He heaps phrase upon phrase upon phrase. It'll come up on the screen. There was a woman subject to bleeding for 12 years. Can you get the next slide? And the next one? Oh, <laughs> there was a woman subject to bleeding for 12 years, suffering a great deal, suffering under many doctors, spending all she had, getting worse, not better, hearing about Jesus, came up behind him and touched him. You get the full extent. Do you feel her predicament? 
the depth of her need, nothing more to give or offer. She couldn't pay Jesus. All of that was gone. Her only hope was to see if she could get something for free just by touching him. She thinks, verse 28, that if she touches his cloak, she'll be healed. Again, literally, the word is sozo, that if I touch him, I will be saved. It's interesting, you see, the Greek word saved can be used in the normal sense that we use it of being rescued from something. But I actually think it's interesting that there's a more normal word for healing that's used once or twice in the passage as well. It would be more natural to use here. But Mark, you see, chooses to use the word save for both Jairus in verse 23 and for the woman in verse 28. Because in this context of encountering Jesus, Mark is writing a book about the kingdom of God coming. And he recognizes that these are actually more than healings. The young girl will be getting to live again. The woman will be given a whole new life. They're going to be saved from so much. And that's why again in verse 34, Jesus says to her, your faith has, and in the original it's not healed, your faith has saved you. And so the woman touches the edge of Jesus' cloak. And this terrible disease that was characterized by a never-ending flow of blood stops immediately. Literally, the fountain dried up. That's what it says. It's like last week when Christoph was reminding us of how the tossing waves on the lake were stilled immediately. So too here, the disease that if any doctor had managed to get it right, might have got better gradually, stops immediately in such a way that the woman knew herself that she was better. We see here Jesus not only showing supernatural power, but also supernatural knowledge. We read, you see, in the gospel that he regularly needed to get away, to escape, to spend time alone and with his father, to be refreshed. We can't underestimate the human cost of this healing ministry, this itinerant preaching ministry that it was having on Jesus, the perfect man. And so he was aware when power went out from him. And he and the power are inextricably linked. It isn't that Jesus possessed some special gift, some power that he could turn on and off at will, that he was a special guy who performed miracles. No, no, he was the power. He was the miracle. And so if you can go back to that pushing and shoving crowd scene, Jesus manages to turn around and look, and look for one particular person, someone who is now doing her best to slink away unnoticed. She was happy. She got what she came from. She got what she came for. She got what nobody else could give. But she was still shy and embarrassed. She needed to get away. And what makes it strange is that Jesus, who will later tell Jairus and his family not to say anything about what has happened, deliberately seeks out this woman, not respecting her privacy, not respecting her wishes, and he publicly exposes her. What on earth's happening? Some people, when they speak about how God has entered their life, will 
talk maybe about the first steps of faith. And they'll mention how a preacher was explaining the grace of God and the need for repentance and faith. And they might say something like, you know, there were hundreds of other people there, but it felt like he was looking straight at me and talking to me. Well, I think this woman was the original one who experienced that. Just like earlier, as Mark puts us into the woman's shoes by you know, heaping phrase upon phrase in, in quick succession, he does it again here in verse 33. Hopefully it'll come up on the screen if we can read it. And again, our Bibles have got the order different for some reason, but this is the order in the original, and I think it's important. The woman, can you, yes, the woman, trembling and fearful, came, fell at his feet, and told him, the whole truth. Do you feel her vulnerability here? It starts that she knows something's happened. She's frightened. She has to come forward. She falls down, but she tells him the whole truth. Can you feel her vulnerability? Do you see her transparency? This is not a safe space. At least she doesn't think it is. And yet what she's about to find out is that it's the safest space she has ever been in her troubled life. Why does Jesus do this to her? You see, it wasn't just a case of Jesus giving her what the other doctors couldn't. Jesus was able, in fact, he wanted to give her so much more. Her need was not just physical healing. Her physical condition had emotional and social and spiritual consequences. She was an outcast. She was unclean. This woman didn't just need her health restored. She needed to have her dignity restored. She didn't just need to be healed. She needed to be reintegrated into the community. And above all, the others who were pressing and crushing Jesus, desperate for a sign or a miracle, waiting to see what was going to happen with Jairus, they needed to hear her story and to hear what could be achieved by the tiniest, little, microscopic, unthought-through, semi-superstitious faith when it was placed in Jesus. They needed to see that it wasn't the amount of faith that saved, but who the faith was placed in and the sincerity of the heart that sought out Jesus. And so we have it. In a story of two daughters, Jesus says to this one, Daughter, your faith has healed? No, no. Sozo again. Your faith has saved you. Because it's not just healing. It's hope. It's peace. It's freedom. Go in peace and be free from your sufferings and all that they have brought you. When others have failed, Jesus goes way beyond our asking. And then, when all hope has gone, Jesus takes us by the hand. While Jesus has been stopping and looking around and having a conversation with some woman who'd already got what she wanted, Jairus' daughter has passed away. Can you imagine the emotions Jairus must have been feeling 
as Jesus seems to delay and waste time. Surely if he even needed to talk with this woman, he could have arranged to see her afterwards, after he'd been to Jairus' house. I mean, if Jesus had been any sort of registered doctor, this would be classified as the clearest case of medical malpractice you're ever likely to see. Maybe Jesus was thinking, you have a daughter, Jairus. This woman is also a daughter. You have a 12-year-old. This woman has been bleeding for your child's entire lifetime. You're a synagogue ruler. With your contacts and power, you could find a way of talking to me anytime. This woman would be kept away from me because of her uncleanness, and she was only able to breach the religious security checks because of the crowd, and this was her last chance saloon. You have just seen that all it took for that woman to be saved was the slightest touch, and yet your people come and say, don't bother me anymore. No. Stop being afraid and start believing. That's what he says. Jairus may have thought that he was taking a risk in coming to Jesus, but he had nothing to lose. From this point on, it is Jesus who's the only one taking a risk. He's deliberately stacking the deck against himself, waiting until death itself happened in order to show who he was and what he could do. Now as he approaches Mark tells us of this enormous uproar. Our translation says there was a commotion, people wailing and crying. Uh, Mark's words uh, try to convey something a bit more frenzied. Uh, in the Greek, it's thorabon kleinontas alalazontes. That last word is like the vocal yodeling of the wailing that you hear in Middle Eastern funerals. Eugene Peterson in the message is typically brilliant at this point. He writes, they pushed their way through the gossips looking for a story and the neighbors bringing in casseroles. At first I thought, Eugene, you've run away with yourself. It's funny, but I don't think it's right. A young girl has died. People would be distraught. But I should have known better. The text doesn't say Jesus heard their grief, although I'm sure there was genuine grief and he would know that. He said, he saw. He saw the commotion, the professionalized paraphernalia of grief. He needed to get all of that out of the way before he could work. The Jewish Mishnah stipulated that there were protocols to be followed when somebody died. Specifically, it says, even the poor should hire at least two flutes and one wailing woman. What a great job to have. You know, imagine your passport. Name, Mary of Bethany, occupation, wailing woman. So Jesus dismisses all the unnecessary accretions around death in order to deal with death itself. He gets rid of all the stuff around death in order to deal with death itself. It's as if he dismisses the undertaker, throws out the gaudy floral tributes and the teddy bears, turns off the music of her favorite boy band, and gets straight down to business to show them this is not the end. And they mock him. 
He hasn't been near the girl yet. He's in no position to give a medical diagnosis, which shows here that Jesus is speaking on an altogether different level. Her medical diagnosis doesn't matter to Jesus, for he is about to demonstrate that to him even the worst diagnosis is just a temporary blip. He's here to bring a whole different meaning to life and to death. And so if we were filming this, we would have had a prolonged period of noise and shouting and jostling with the crowd and the woman, followed by the wailing and yelling of the professional mourners and the sobbing of the young girl's family and friends. And suddenly the camera would move into the inner room and Jesus would shut the door. And it's just him, his three disciples, and the parents in with the girl. And as the door closes, we move from chaos to calmness. The shouting, the mocking are excluded. And Jesus moves over. And in an incredibly understated way, he speaks to the girl. No complicated ritual, no manipulation, no creating an atmosphere, no abracadabra, no magical words. There are manuscripts of magical incantations that have survived from the ancient Greek world. And the spells are so bizarre and esoteric that they deliberately defy translation. They are deliberately gobbledygook, but not with Jesus. His words are so simple, even a child could understand them. Talitha kuma. Little girl, I say to you, get up. If ever a phrase has had the life sucked out of it by translators, it's this one. And that's why Mark probably didn't even want to translate it into Greek. And so in one of only three or four instances in the whole Gospels, we have the words of Jesus in his mother tongue, Aramaic. Because, you see, this was a term of endearment. This is what a mother would say to her child when she went to wake her up in the morning. Little girl, I say to thee, no, 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 no. She would go in and she would take her hand and she'd say, okay, pet, it's time to get up. And so that when the girl heard the words, it was just as if her mama was waking her up. Jesus had told us, after all, she's only sleeping. It's interesting, too, that he didn't pull her up the way he, it says he helped Peter's mother-in-law to, to get up when she was ill. No, he simply held her hand, and when she woke up, she stood up all by herself. And having earlier made the woman tell her story in public, not allowing her to slink away. Jesus gave this family strict instructions not to tell anybody, possibly to let him and his disciples get a quick getaway, avoiding the crowd that would be even more inquisitive and demanding now, but possibly also because we find in the Gospels that Jesus treats everybody individually according to their wider needs. The woman needed the public exposure to be reintegrated into the community. This young girl didn't. In fact, even in the days before TV and social media, she would still have been treated as a freak of some sort. 
So now maybe they might be able to pass it off that she was just sleeping. A 12-year-old girl didn't need the sort of attention that would come with the resurrection. It was a private miracle witnessed by Jesus' disciples, one of whom we know was Mark's source for this gospel, so that it could later be recorded for us in terms of what happened. And so she gets up and she eats. The old Scottish preacher George Philip has a wonderful comment on this. He said that when she opened her eyes, the first thing she saw was her mother and father standing with Jesus. There is no greater gift any parent can give their child. We stand with Jesus, and our children notice. Because this is Jesus. This Jesus who has already demonstrated his power over sickness and demons, and the wind and the waves, has shown his authority now over the most supreme enemy of all, death. What can we do? What can we do but fall down and worship him? Three times in this chapter we see it happening with the characters. Back at the beginning in the other story, verse 6, the possessed man falls at the feet of Jesus. Verse 22, Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus. Verse 33, the woman, fearful and trembling, falls at his feet. And for each of them he heals and restores and raises them up to new life. When our heart is breaking, Jesus walks with us. When others have failed, he gives beyond our asking. And when all hope has gone, he takes us by the hand. But Monty, you say we still face death. We still suffer pain. My friend lost a child and didn't get a Jairus experience. Yes, because now you see it's as if we're living in that frustrating waiting time between verses 25 and 41. We know Jesus has the truth and the power, but we don't understand his schedule. Like Jairus, we don't understand why he's hanging around, maybe even helping other people, but not us. We don't get it. Those crucial minutes are ours between verse 25 and verse 41. They're a kind of metaphor of our lives. Chaos, noisy, tossed about by all the things that crowd around us. Yeah, Jesus is there somewhere, but sometimes he, he seems swallowed up by the crowd, invisible. And meanwhile, we're facing grief or death. But remember, in the middle of all that, Jesus does speak something incredibly important to us in those verses. When the other voices around us are saying, don't bother with Jesus anymore, he says, don't be afraid, just believe. Trust me. Or as Peterson puts it in the message, don't listen to them, listen to me. Why should we? Are we task-oriented or people-oriented? Somewhere on the spectrum we're there. But we see Jesus as the perfect synthesis. Had he been task-oriented, he would have ignored the woman and pushed on ahead to Jairus' house. 
If he'd been purely people-oriented, he would never have made it there. There would have been too many other people to see and help on the way. But he was able to be both. Because these incidents are really a reflection of his whole ministry in a microcosm. As we travel through Mark's gospel with him, we will see that he had a task to which he was committed, that he refused to be deflected from or diverted from or distracted from. But that task was always only exclusively for the benefit of his people who he loved. From the beginning, he set his face towards Jerusalem to the moment when that crowd that had thronged him and crowded him like a rock star today would crown round him as a hate-filled rabble tomorrow, carrying him not to his next gig, his next miracle, but to his place of execution. And on that day, he would be utterly alone. There would be nobody to walk with him when his heart was broken. There would be nobody to hold his hands as he faced the darkest hour. And so, friends, we can trust him because he completed that task and he died that death for us. And we trust him above all because having gone through it, he still lives. For God raised him from the death to remove the fear of death from us. And so that his words to a Jairus who was facing death are his words to us when we face it. Do not be afraid. Trust me. As Jairus discovered, in spite of the chaos, through all the noise, one thing was still happening. Jesus was still walking with us, step by step forward towards resurrection. So that when that day comes, when all hope is slipping away, and we may be inclined to be afraid, we can know that death is just asleep. And we will feel the touch of a hand and hear a gentle voice greeting us on the other side, saying, it's okay, pet. It's time to get up. Psalm 73, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. It's okay, pet. It's time to get up. Let's pray.